Welcome back. This is Dr. Jim Schrader, and we have reached our 30th episode of Living a Whole Christian Life. I just want to say thanks to all of your listeners out there who've been with us the whole time. If you find value in what you're listening and really enjoyed it, please consider passing this along to others. I, I think that it's such a key today that we all have a conversation around what it means to live a whole Christian life. So the last week, we finished our series up on movement and how movement is ordained by God in this world. And so this week, we start off a series on uh, food and our diet and, and nutrition in general. And as we go through this Christian home, and you know we've been before with our foundation and our framework, and now we headed into the Christian home from movement to our diet, we really consider what, what does food mean to us? You know, what does food mean to our Christian faith? So it's an interesting thing, as I sit here on the north side of Evansville and kind of reflect on where we're at today with food. And one of the interesting things about where we're at is that within 2.0 miles of our house, there are no less than 10 pizza joints in this area. So if, you're, if you love your pizza, whether it's thin crust, thick crust, whatever style it is, you can find it here on the north side. And I wrote an article years ago about this topic called, uh, What's the Satiation of Pizza Joints? And it was really kind of a perspective, kind of a question about the fact that pizza, of course, became its own industry decades ago. I guess ice cream and coffee have kind of mirrored that too. But there was something so simple, so tasty about pizza that obviously rose up and created restaurants that were built around one single food. But as I sit here on the north side of Evansville today and kind of reflect on the fact that, again, there's 10 pizza joints, and I'm not even including restaurants that serve pizza or pizza at a gas station. I'm including bona fide pizza joints. The reality is that the food has really taken on a life of its own, probably nothing like we've ever seen in history. So here's a little interesting perspective um, on the expansion of food. When we look at restaurants in 1970, the United States population was 205 million people. By 2014, we had around 308 million people. So that's about, for all you mathematicians, it's about a 50% increase in the population between 1970 and 2014. Now when we look at restaurant sales during that same period, in 1970, sales for restaurants were around $42.8 billion. By 2014, that number had increased to more than $683 billion, which was about a 1,500% increase. So remarkably, between 1970 and 2014, restaurant sales had grown more than 30 times more than the population had itself. And so you might be thinking, well, you know, I guess people were just eating out way more than they ever were. Well, of course, that's the case in many ways. But actually, if we look at even not just restaurant growth, but grocery store growth um, between, for example, 1992 to 2015, it certainly wasn't declining. Um, in fact, the growth during that period was about 83%, certainly nothing like the 1,500% we saw during the, the few decades with restaurants, but a still an increase, a sizable increase. And so as our love affair with food has certainly increased and the way that we eat and where we eat has dramatically changed, what hasn't changed is the, our bodies and our minds and the way that you know, God designed us. And so here's a kind of interesting couple of facts as we think about kind of the food revolution and what's going on and how it corresponds to our brain and our body. So our brain is about 2% of our body weight. 
But what's interesting about it is that depending on the research studies, it consumes between a minimum of 20% and upwards of 40% of our metabolism, of what we eat. So if you think about that, again, it's pretty remarkable that it's only 2% of our body weight, the brain is, but it consumes 20 to 40% of our metabolism. In the same way, one-sixth of the blood in our body at any given time is flowing through our brain. I mean, that's a remarkable amount for such a small organ. But the blood itself, of course, that's absorbed, you know, the chemicals, the, the nutrients and, and the macro, we'll talk about macronutrients and micronutrients, all that's absorbed through our food, right, into our bloodstream is continuously going through our brain. And as Bonnie Kaplan, one of the worldwide experts between the link of mental health and diet says, our brain is a needy, greedy organ. And the reality is that, you know, more than our muscles, more than our heart, more than anything else that's impacted by what we eat, it's actually our brain. In fact, when you look at the link between mental health and diet, the research in the last 10 years has been pretty phenomenal, that there is incredible link between like our anxiety level, levels of depression, our irritability, so many aspects, even our attention, so many aspects about our mental health, you know, our psychological health are linked to what we eat. So as we think about this perspective, the evolution of, of restaurants and the evolution of just our food consumption, but as it relates to our body, which of course is, doesn't evolve anything that, like that fast at all, um, we get into the area of what we call a couple things to kind of know. So we talk about macronutrients and macronutrients are really what we consider like carbohydrates and proteins and fats. And fortunately, most of us in this country are not deficient in these areas. Uh, the foods that we eat are pretty high in macronutrients. But on the unfortunate side, with micronutrients, micronutrients are things like vitamins and minerals and essential fatty acids. And many of our foods today lack adequate supplies of micronutrients, partly because they are often what we call ultra-processed foods, or UPFs. In fact, sadly, there was a recent study looking at kids and their consumption of UPFs, and it was somewhere about 60 to 70% of all foods consumed today by kids in this country are, again, ultra-processed foods. So part of the consumption issue is that we're eating foods that are low on micronutrients. The other part of it that's kind of you know concerning is that actually the soil itself seems to be less nutrient-rich than it was even decades ago. And so even foods that are good for us, for example, your grandmother's you know, radish or carrot is very different than the radish and carrot that you and I are eating today. So as we intersect with this idea of what we're consuming and how that has changed, there are some startling statistics. And you know, I'm, I'm not, not going to go through all of these, but I think, again, as we consider living a whole Christian life, we have to understand kind of what's evolved. And one of the most startling statistics to consider here is that when we look back to 1990, no state had an obesity rate of greater than 19%. 20 years later, in 2010, no state had an obesity rate of less than 20%. So again, 1990, no state had a greater obesity rate of 19%. 20 years later, no state had an obesity rate of less than 20%. And sadly, being overweight had become the new normal. And 10 years later, as we look into 2020, 12 states, including my home state of Indiana, now have an adult obesity rate of at least 35%. 
In fact, 71% of adults today in this country are either overweight or obese. So as our love affair with food has grown, so has the reality, the startling statistics, I think, that many of us have come to know. And I, here I'm not, and, and, you know, the purpose of this today is not to be an alarmist or um, the purpose today is not throughout all the worst statistics I can find, but the purpose is to really consider again, what does food have to do with living a whole Christian life? It's interesting. Years ago, I was sitting in church. There was a homily being given by a deacon here locally. And at one point during the homily, I found myself honestly very uncomfortable because as he was describing a number of things, he described the idea of being well-fed. And in doing so, he grabbed his gut um, in in what I would say was a pretty proud way and stated, I like to be well-fed. And, you know, if you ever visit a buffet and you don't walk away well-fed, well, that's your fault. And so he kind of went on to kind of brag a little bit about that idea. And I thought to myself, what would have happened if he had been up there bragging about his lustful pursuits or his greedy ways, would the congregation have reacted differently or reacted at all to bragging about being lustful or greedy than what we kind of viewed or what our reaction was to the bragging about being well-fed and maybe in many ways seemingly bragging about even gluttonous habits? I think this is the difficult conundrum we face today. And I'm going to talk next week about so many positive aspects of food. But we we really have to be real about this topic today because there's a real question about whether or not gluttony itself has become the softest sin of all or maybe one of our favorite sins in general. And I know this isn't necessarily a popular topic. And for those of you who are listening, for some of you, this may be difficult or it may be annoying to even hear this, but that's the purpose of this this whole discussion, this whole living a whole Christian life, is that we really have to look at what God's design says, what the natural law for our world and our bodies and our minds say. And, you know, sometimes I think it is pretty kind of inconvenient, and sometimes I think in some ways it seems a little bit depressing. But it, we have to ask ourselves, what does our Christian faith have to say about food and the patterns of food consumption today. Um, And I think the first thing it has to say, and it's been saying this for a long, long time, is that food is a tremendous gift, right? It's this rare, rare blend of both necessity and pleasure. And think about this. I mean, how many different ways can we find pleasure with food, whether it's the physical pleasure of eating something that tastes really good, or the psychological pleasure of feeling good while we're eating, especially if maybe it's been a difficult day or feeling good while we drink certain things. The social pleasure of celebrating with food, right? And of great food and great friends and great company. There's so many ways that food is just tremendously unique, that it's, it's available to all, it's necessary for all, and yet it carries all of these pleasurable attributes. So I think that the first thing we have to remind ourselves is that no matter where we're at today in the trends of our society, Uh, First and foremost, food is a tremendous gift. It's something that really is kind of unrivaled in our world. It's celebrated across every culture and creed. And it's utilized, even if you think about our Christian faith and and the idea of communion and receiving Jesus Christ, as I do, you know, every Sunday in our Catholic faith, food is clearly a central place in our world. The second thing is we have to go back to kind of what the catechism said before, which is that the human body shares in the dignity of the image of God. It is the whole human person that's intended to become, in the body of Christ, a temple of the Spirit. So what it says to us is that while food is a tremendous gift, 
It must never thwart, it must never threaten this idea that our human body shares in the dignity of the image of God, that it's a temple of his Holy Spirit. And so this is, I think, one of the difficult things that we face here is that in celebrating with food and in our revolution with food, we wonder how does it coalesce or not coalesce with this idea of the whole human body sharing in the image of God. When food contradicts that, then it would say, as God's design would say, that we're not using it in the way that we should. Uh, But when food celebrates that, then it really honors this idea of the gift that food is. And I think the third thing, and along kind of what I just said, that our Christian faith has to say is that we have to look and be really, really honest about God's design of our body and our brain, right? So I'll talk much more about this next week, and I think there's so many great opportunities with food. And again, like I've said this entire podcast, this is all about opportunity. Um, We can treat it as an obligation, but when we treat it as an obligation, we miss this covenant with God, right? We look at it as a commitment, but commitments fall short of the love that we desire to have with our Creator, right? And so when we we celebrate this idea of God's design, um, and we celebrate this idea of using God's design well, what we find is that when food is used well, it really does unlock this tremendous potential. And it's a potential in the way we think, the way we move, the way we feel, the way we recover, the way that we experience life, actually, in many ways. You know, I talked before about kind of my involvement in ultra marathons and other kind of long endurance pursuits. One of the things I came to know food was, was food was just a capacity builder. I mean, you know, for all the things that I was doing to move and create more movement, the reality was that food was was doing things in my body to allow me to recover, to allow me to go further. And, And that happens actually not just, of course, in the endurance world, but it happens in all aspects of our our lives, that when food is used well, it's a tremendous capacity builder as God designs it. But when it's not used well, our bodies and our minds become more sluggish, more bloated, more painful, certainly not the way we really want them to be. So we run in this intersection of the design of food and the design of our body and minds. And that really, really, I think that that's part of where we find a sense of our faith in this world is how are we intersecting those two, right? How are we intersecting those two tremendous gifts in ways that God would design? And the fourth, I, I want to do this interesting reflection that I had over the last few years. And I, I want us to think about this with regards to food. So miracles happen in all forms, right? You know, we, we've witnessed and, and heard about miracles, whether it's curing cancer whether it's curing organ deficiencies, whether it is things happening like the dancing of the sun in the sky, whether it's pain improving, whether it's psychological distress going away. There's all sorts of miracles that happen in this world. But you know what's interesting as I've reflected on this? There's one miracle that I've never heard of, and maybe it exists out there. And if you're you're familiar with it, certainly contact me. But I've never heard of this miracle before, which is the miracle of immediate weight loss, right? Have you ever heard of somebody who prayed to God and in an instant lost 100 pounds or an instant lost a huge amount of their body weight in that way? If it exists out there, let me know. But assuming that it doesn't, I've often thought to myself, what, what's God trying to say there? You know, God creates opportunities for miracles in so many different ways, things that defy natural law, things that defy our understanding. 
Well, why isn't that God creates regular miracles when it comes to what food, and of course, food's not the only thing, but how food intersects with our body? And I don't really have a great answer, but what my thought about this over the years has been is that food has so much to do with how we cultivate our free will. Again, free will really is the cornerstone of God's design. Without free will, we can't choose God. We can't choose Christ in this world. And so even Jesus' salvation, which is available to us all, is only available because we can be open to choose that. And without free will, we simply wouldn't be able to have that opportunity. And so I wonder what this idea of food and what it does to us is that, you know, in some ways it seems to be that food is the unique intersection of free will in our bodies and our minds. There's a lot of things in our lives that we don't have choice. And again, even free will can be affected by depending on where you live and, and you know, what you're exposed to. So in many ways, even that can be muted. But as we grow up, there probably isn't more ways, more frequent ways that we intersect with free will oftentimes than how we eat. And so it's as if, you know, we think about all these ideas that food is a tremendous gift, right? A rare blend of both necessity and pleasure, that the human body share in the dignity of the image of God and intended to become a temple of the spirit, that God's design of the body and the brain says that when food is used well, it unlocks tremendous potential. But when not used well, it reduces our capacity. And that in all ways that miracles are always possible. But maybe the miracle here of food is not so much some magical, mystical, instantaneous change. But maybe the miracle of food is the miracle of free will itself. Of how we come to cultivate that covenant, be open to his grace, and ultimately become what we eat. So in the end of the day, as we, we kind of continue on with this series and this physical rooms of our home, you know, I just ask you to kind of consider today, no matter where you are in the world of food and no matter how much you love food or don't love food or whatever, let's think about it here again as an opportunity, an opportunity to honor God's design in what we consume and what we take in. And I think in doing so, when we see it as an opportunity, there's often great beauty inherent, even if you found yourself on the wrong side of the plate for decades. For now, I hope you have a good meal tonight, this morning, or wherever you're listening. And this is Jim Schrader. Be holy, be whole. Be whole.